Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our White Tiger Q&A, where Ramin Bahraini spoke to Gurinder Chada about the making of his acclaimed film. Ramin spoke to Gurinder about acting and improvisation, his camera setups, and the cultural experiences and differences he felt shooting the film. We hope you enjoy. Hey, how are you? Yeah, good. How are you, Ramin? Good, good. Yeah, it's it's good to meet you. Um, and thanks for doing this. I, I I'll never forget when Bennett like Beckham came because I hadn't made a film yet, and the idea that a movie with South Asians or let's just say brown people could have like been accepted that wildly and widely was to me very inspirational to think that maybe I could make a movie one day that someone would watch. You know. Um, my, my first film, Manfred's Car, was so small. I remember having to tell my investors, it's not Ben that like Beckham, so don't think it's going to be a hit, you know, because <laughs> it's just a tiny art house film, but it's possible. So, you know, um, I'll never forget that moment. So it's great to talk to you today. Well, thank you, Ramin. And one day when we're in a real life situation, I'll tell you how hard it was to get that film made because everyone was saying yeah. it wasn't possible. It took me about three years. Um, but let's talk about White Tiger. And uh, I had the pleasure of watching it uh, recently at a Netflix screening uh, with a Q&A with you and the cast after. And I wanted to do this talk because, you know, I, it's, uh, there are so many things to discuss. By the way, this is a director's forum. So it's really the forum where we can talk specifically. So for me, I think one of the things I loved about White Tiger was having made films in India and knowing, you know, the hoops that one goes through, not just to make films in terms of production, but then also to make films for an international audience on an international platform. I think it's a remarkable achievement what you've done. And a lot of people probably don't know the context of that. And so I was very excited to talk to you uh, about that. Also, you're Iranian, you're not Indian. Uh, and so shooting in India, you know, what was that like for you initially, you know, as a kind of, you know, must have been like, you know, I mean, I'm British, and when I go to India, often I'm like a fish out of water, you know, and it's great for the first few weeks with the catering and everything. But, you know, I always pack cans of tuna with me because I know I'll be wanting tuna salad like after a few weeks, and, and I'm just so overdone with India after a while. And how was that for you being an Iranian American in India? The whole cultural side. Yeah. Um... Well, it was certainly different. I mean, um, yes, f- food, anyway, as a director, we all know food is something very, for me at least, a peculiar thing on a movie set because um, I don't have a great stomach. So, you know, Indian food is tough for me. Um, spicy food is tough for me. And food in general, I, I never forget reading, um, making movies, the Sidney Lamette book, and he talked about his lunch schedule, which I thought was so important. So I, I'm always into like, a light lunch, try to take a five or 10 minute nap and then answer all the questions or, or hide from them. Um, but it was different. I mean, my, my experience was, it took me a while to stop trying to force a different method. You know, at a certain point I let go and I was like, okay, well, this is, this is the way they're doing it here. It might take longer than what I'm used to 
but I have more days to shoot. And if I try to do it in another way, it's not really going to solve anything. So kind of going with the flow at a certain point seemed better. Well, that's um, absolutely the right attitude for shooting in India. You have to go with the flow. Yeah. And then something happens and you have no power over it. Like, you know, a herd of cows come into your frame, you know, there's nothing you could do. You have to sit there and let them move out of your frame. Right. It's that, it, that's a metaphor, but that's actually India. You, there are things you can't control and you just have to go with it. But um, one of the things about White Tiger, which I think is amazing, is that with India, generally you have, obviously there's, you know, the Hindi film industry, which is huge, as we know. So in terms of film language in India, um, you have the Hindi film language, you have art house, you know, what they call parallel sort of cinema, art house. And then you have now with the streamers, uh, in India, you have some very good uh, homegrown dramas that are getting a bit of international play, like Sacred Games, for example. Um, and then you have these kind of films that now, which are Indian, where, where people speak Hindi, majority, as opposed to English, and uh, but are being sort of put out on, a, on an international platform. I think, and I think White Tiger is a really good example of a film. Lunchbox was another one actually, but White Tiger I think is a really good example of how fast India has changed in the last few years really with, I think with streamers and um, people looking to showcase talent within India onto a global platform and using production values that we're used to. Because in the past, it's always been this barrier of, oh, it has to appeal to an Indian audience. Therefore, it has to appeal to like the Hindi kind of uh, film going audience, you know, or it's art house. But now there's an in-between here where I think this film sits really well. How has, been, how has it been received in India itself? I think it's... Um... It's been the number one movie or series on Netflix since it opened. So like 10 days in a row now. Um, right. So Yeah. So in terms of viewership, it's been pretty tremendous. Um, in terms Fantastic. of public. Yeah. In terms of public response, I, I, I don't really know. I, I, um, I hear it's doing really well. I hear people like it. Of course, there's going to be, I think, criticisms about the film as there were about the book because it's a critical novel. The novel is you know, it's pretty open in terms of what it's trying to do. But to your other point, like about how, how it was set up or what's you, there, there are huge changes happening globally with the streamers, which are giving, I think opportunities for different kinds of stories from different kinds of people. This one was, this was set up really at Netflix in the studio division in LA. So it was all under Scott Stuber's division. Um, and then, but made in India. Um, so that, that comes with different things like a budget to tell an epic story, which it wouldn't have had otherwise. And then also, you know, the, the story is probably 25, 30% in Hindi and the rest is in English, which I think if it had been the other way around, it may not have happened through. Um, funny. Wow, I remember it as mainly Hindi. Oh my yeah. God, really? Gosh. I'm so glad you say that. Um, well, you know, because the, the novel's in English anyway. Um, so, yeah. and the ballroom character in the novel, he speaks and understands English, but not as much as in the film. In the film, it's more. 
Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things that I thought was really very, very good because you also adapted the novel was, was actually the language, the vernacular, you know, uh, because that that's why I'm not surprised it's done so well in India as well, because it's very, very colloquial at times. And then, uh, you know, very spot on in terms of how the rich talk in India as well as the poor, but then also how what they call NRIs, uh, non-resident Indians, the Priyanka's character, you know, the, 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 the New York-based Indians coming back, how they talk. And often I find that making films like this, even with characters, but also with cast, uh, even though they might all be Indian, they're not always in the same film uh, because people are bringing different uh, sensibilities, acting styles. You know, I mean, I remember in Bender Light Beckham, for example, uh, all the cast were British Asians except for the dad, Anupam Kerr, who was a very big Indian actor mm. and had been in a lot of uh, Indian films. And I remember the first day on set with Anupam, it was just, it was horrific. It was horrific because he had gone back to the default of what he knew, which was, oh, all this, you know, and loud and just big, very big. And I thought, wow, how am I going to, how am I going to handle this? And in the end, the only note I could give him was without crushing him, was I said, now do it again, but don't move your arms. Put your hands in your pockets. And he said, how can I do that? I can't do acting without, you know, losing this. And I said, try it. And gradually we brought his performance down by physically, you know, controlling his hand movements and then his, you know, sound. But with you, you know, you have... um you know, you had a myriad of people in different experiences, some from the West, some from the East, but but the language that, that you wrote, the dialogue, you know, and that you adapted, I think um, was very uh, distinct. You know, that was one of the strengths, I think, of the film. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is Arvind, you know, his great novel, and then, um, you know, working with Tess Joseph was the casting director in India. Um, and that working with her was great in terms of finding the right people. And then yeah. with McCool, the producer, we went over the dialogues a lot and, and I'm really open to improvisations. So, um, you know, a character like you're talking about how the different classes speak, you know, yeah. a character like Vitiligo Lips, who's, he's a character out of the novel, that actor who's really good, Nalnish, um, you know, I'm encouraging him or anyone really to do improvisations and they were so invested they were so dedicated in their roles the actors they wanted to to achieve something that i think he he was an example or balram's the kid this small role balram's brother him and him and the actor playing balram adarsh they were they knew each other from acting school they sat for hours talking about what village they came from what are the dialects in that village what kind of words would they use and then they would alter the language and show me. And I'd be like, great, if this is more authentic, you should hundred percent just change it and do that. Mm. So it was a lot of just dedication from the cast, you know? Yes. And you saw that. And there were scenes where there would be the written dialogue in English happening. And then there would be Hindi colloquialisms coming in from other characters and they were all overlapping, which is also quite an an interesting and different, it's hard to do that. So, you know, to have different, not only have two lines of dialogue overlapping each other without the sound person going, wait, we have to do it separately. Um, but then 
but then also doing it in different languages because the Hindi colloquialisms were often uh, self-deprecating or taking the piss out of the characters while, you know, having to play this role of servant master, servant master, you know. Um, um, I think the other thing that I thought was um, really great was that the film and, and the book too, but the book was, you know, it came out in 2008, you know. Um, this is 11 years later, right? But what the book and the film totally does is capture that, sense in India today that, you know, there is this sense of uh, bravado and um, palpable kind of energy, I think, where people are just like, you know, wanting to be heard and seen and break out of, you know, their parents' moulds, you know. So the caste system as we know it is, you know, is really being challenged by a lot of ordinary people, not middle-class people, but ordinary people, I think, you know, with all the whole thing with the untouchables. And and I think what um, the novel did was just capture that, that zeitgeist, you know. And so we're catching up with it in the West, you know, with your, your movie. It's a totally different India, you know, totally different. Yeah, things have changed, of course. Um, you know, at that time, when Arvind wrote the novel, it was a high point for India. Um, the West was in decline, as it still is. And um, India and China were on, on the rise. And India had a real confidence at that time. Economically, uh, nationally, as a country, its people had a confidence. I mean, China continued to rise. I think India um, stumbled somewhere economically. That It's come out that they were fabricating some of the economic numbers. but. Um, you know, I, I was actually waiting more than 11 years. I've been waiting 15 years to make the right. movie um, because Arvind was a close so friend of mine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he was a friend of yours from Columbia, right? Yeah, yeah. We were friends at Columbia. Um, there was a group of us, you know, Indians, Iranians, uh, Afghans, Lebanese, Syrians that found one another. And um, he wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a, a filmmaker. And so we connected on that and um, started a 25-year dialogue about movies and books. And I would send him my scripts for feedback, and he would send me manuscripts for feedback. And I remember in 2004, four years before the novel was published, he sent me a rough draft of the novel, and I was just immediately blown away by it. It was um, propulsive. It had energy, as you said. It, it jumps out of your hand when you try to read the book. And, and that main character of Balram Hallway was just, still alive you know he was so funny and sarcastic and witty and his per his perception on the world was so unique and different you know and his journey was so compelling um i remember telling arvind at that time my god if this novel doesn't get published we should both just quit what we're doing because it was so good and um it just took 15 years to get to the place of kind of the movie being for me being ready to make it and and maybe for the industry to catch up to the idea that this kind of movie could get financed on a big scale that it needed and be seen. And, you know, Netflix being that company that was like, we, we were prepared to give you the money to make this movie. And so it was just kind of awesome. that finally came together after all that time. I think it took so long. I mean, it came out in 2008. It was a Booker Prize winner. I mean, it was, came out to all this acclaim. And, and it's been this long. You know, why do you think it took so long? 
Well, I know that from the beginning. Were you with it? Because I think there were other people I know as well. There were other people. Yeah. Yeah, no, there were other people attached to it for a while. Um, The book, you know, there was so much positive and negative energy around it at that time that to me it seemed a bit, I wasn't sure about the prospects of doing it at that time and my friendship with Arvin I felt was more valuable. Um, But then maybe four or five years ago, Arvin and I, we're talking usually once or twice a week, he mentioned to me, what, what do you think about doing the film now? I said, I would, I've always wanted to do it. I would love to do it. And I think, um, I think now's the chance that it could be financed because of the streamers. I mean, yeah. it needs money. It's, it's not a small movie. It's not a small story. It needed a budget. And I don't think, I don't see how really in 2008, it would have been very difficult to convince people, as you know full well from your own projects, give me this much money to make a movie in India with an entirely Indian cast about political, social issues, you know, et cetera. But I tell you also in talking about the film now for the last few weeks that it's come out, um, I I finally occurred to me in reflecting on it that I wouldn't have understood how to make it in 2008. In in 2008, when Arvin won the Man Booker, we met the very next day in London. I was there at um, London Film Festival when Sandra Hebron ran it. I was there presenting um, Goodbye Solo, my third film. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Arvin and I met on the street the day after he won the, the prize. And if I tried to imagine now what kind of movie I would have made then, it wouldn't have been this. I think it would have been a small sliver of the story and very matter of fact. I wouldn't have understood how to tackle the tone, which, so I'm, I'm glad in a way that it took this long because I feel as a filmmaker, I caught up to Arvin somehow. You know? Yeah, was he? But, but when he reached out to you, had he been disappointed with yeah. other people? Because I'm sure there were other people who sort of clamoured after it, after the Booker Prize tried and optioned it, but they couldn't get it off the ground. No, I, I don't know if he was disappointed or not. He he doesn't want to be that involved. I mean, mm. when when um, he mentioned that, I just contacted the rights holder Makul Deora, who became my partner in the film. He was the producer in India, who was awesome to work with. Um, we had a great you know, vibe right off the bat, he and I and clicked. But Ar- Arvin, it, he told me, he said, this will be your first screenplay I won't read for notes. He's like, I don't want to read it. But you have my blessing to do anything, change anything, reinvent it, do, do whatever you want with it, which was great because it gave you freedom. It, it made me feel secure that he was fine with whatever I wanted to do. And um, he gave good advice on traveling to India and traveling by foot as much as possible by bus to try to try to see the locations the way a character like Balram would, as opposed to from a chauffeured car in, in, in air conditioning. Yeah, you might get in that car and go somewhere and then you would just be like, okay, give me my interpreter and let's just wander for a few hours here yeah. and try to get a feeling of the, of the different places and spend a lot of time talking to drivers, you know, talking to drivers in India, trying to get a, their stories. Well, it certainly feels like, um, he entrusted his baby in somebody who, you know, had the um, integrity that he put in his novel to bring to life. You know, that's what I feel about it. It feels like a very um, honourable piece in honouring this great novel. Um, I think that um, um, 
we should talk a little bit about the um, who says hello thanks Ramin for giving us an amazing film and to Directors UK for this opportunity he would like to know about specific scenes would you be able to please tell us about the scene where Balram signs the confession could you oh. talk a bit about how you prepared for it any research rehearsal then was there anything special you said to Adesh to bring the emotion of the scene to life uh, well, thank thank you for saying that and asking about it. Um, I think, you, Gurinder, you know, and a lot of people, the directors in the audience know, when you're editing a movie um, for however many months, which this one went on for a long time, I, I was editing for almost eight, nine months, and six of them alone in a room because of COVID. The other editor was working remotely. And um, you lose perspective and you you stop having emotional reaction to most of the film. But that scene, this scene and one other scene, I always found myself moved by, even after seeing it a hundred times. And it's because of Adarsh, the actor, you know? And um, the, the, there wasn't that intense um, rehearsal or anything. We, we did a um, reading, the three lead actors and I did readings. And then Adarsh came to so many callbacks with other actors that he and I ended up rehearsing the movie for a couple of months in casting sessions with all the supporting roles, including in this case, um, Vijay Moria, the actor playing the mongoose, who is also an accomplished screenwriter in India. He's an award-winning screenwriter. Um, mainly for, for the plan for that, there's not a lot of setups. I mean, I, I don't storyboard. I, I typically just do shot lists, maybe a floor plan. Um, I don't put marks down. I don't tell the actors where they, where they have to go or what they have to do. I'm I prefer them to help create the blocking. Um, the number one word on set is search. And that is for the actors and for me and for the creative department heads, which is um, we know what the scene is. We've talked about it. I have a sense of the shots. I've talked about the shots with the team. But in that moment, I'm, you know, you're searching for more. Is there another dimension to the scene? Is there another way to do the scene? Um, is there another performance for this scene? Could we find something new? Just searching. So that's kind of a blanket thing for all of the movie. Um, I don't say action or cut, so there's never any of that unless it's a big scene with a lot of people and then the AD will say it because I just don't want to do it. It's more about, um, like in this scene, Adarsh is, is leading the scene. He's the one coming into the room. So it's really just whenever you're ready. and. Um, there is no cut because I don't know what they may or may not do after the scripted page. And I'm eager for something magical that may happen. This sequence was planned for that opening shot, which is a, a steady cam POV that turns into a wide shot. Ballroom enters his own POV, it turns into a wide. And then the rest of the scene was around the turning point of the confession, which I knew I wanted to be um, on a steady cam a little bit low on a wide lens that would go travel towards his his face um as he read the confession and it started to dawn on him what was happening and he would be the one person that would have that shot and, and the mongoose would be on a, on a medium to long lens over the shoulder from the sofa and um i did a couple takes without moving the camera just to have it to see what was going on and for the actors to land and then um, I told Adarsh, I'm going to bring the camera pretty close, so be prepared. And we did one take, and he told me I can't do it. 
because I can't see the mongoose anymore. I'm acting to a piece of tape on the edge of the lens because now the camera was so close he couldn't see around it. And so then we had a, a talk of just trying to find the way to emotionally get him to that place um, of connecting to the mongoose, even though he couldn't physically see him. And I, we just did three takes. The second take was really good. And the third take, honestly, um, you know, I had teared up a little bit at the monitor from his performance. And it just seemed there was no reason to do it after the third take. And I think he believed me when I told him that it was something special. I think he felt that he had managed to deliver that performance to a piece of tape on a lens. Um, and as a young actor, he had never experienced that challenge yet. Um, He's a trained actor, uh, uh, Adarsh. Yeah. Um, full scholarship to the best acting school in India. He had done a couple supporting roles, but he had never been a lead in a movie before. Yeah. So it was a a big uh, thing for him, you know. It's a very complex scene in terms of the dynamics that are being played out with all the characters because it's slightly the tables have turned, and um, the one of the amazing things that the film captures and the book captures is that sort of paternal, benevolent attitude of the servant and the master, which is still very much there in India. You know, um, I know when we go, uh, my husband, who's from California, uh, when people constantly give him water or give him coffee, you know, and he always ends up saying thank you, you know, you have it too, you know, and I'm like, no, you can't say that. <laughs> and so he's getting into trouble. But there is this sort of dynamic. And the, what is great about the, the that scene in particular is up until now, the um, the masters have always acted in this sort of, they're not like masters, you know, of servants, but there's this sort of subtle way of commanding, you know, being in command, which is this sort of paternal attitude, like they call him son, and they say, oh, you're like family. Oh, I'm like family. Oh, you're like my family. Who are you? You're a family, aren't you? And they're saying all this as they're about to stick the knife in, into him. And the, and the bravado of those actors too, and they're fantastic, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah the family is fun to play that sort of, bravado master and then now in this scene they've got to be obsequious and become the servant that was tremendous yeah in fact Vijay the, the actor playing the mongoose um his first audition a couple of readings we did he tried to play that scene mean and I suggested well maybe you should try it another way which is you know invite him into as you said into the family and be very friendly with him you know, congratulate him on how wonderful he's doing, you know, and then he came up with these good improvisations, which I love in the end when the camera's on Balram and he's smiling, but twitching and his eyes have wandered up and off camera, you hear the mongoose saying things like, aren't we brothers? Don't we hang out and have food together? All this kind of yes. phony, phony talk. Um, but then there was that awesome part that I love, which still it, part of the sequence, because after that, he comes out into the hallway where the elevator is. And I knew I didn't need but one shot. And I, I knew it should be, for me, a high angle, wide, slowly traveling in, very slow creep. Because we've been in this close-up for so long. In the previous scene, 
And Adarsh again does these improvisations, which I love where he went back to the door as if he might say or like ask another question. In my mind, he's going there to ask what what just happened and I don't understand, but he can't do it. And then we have to see. He's He's processing. Yeah. He's processing because the whole car system is laid out in front of him. And yeah. he's trying to figure out how do, well, how do I subvert this or I can't or he's, it's, he's processing and you see it on camera. It's wonderful. There's another scene which, um, uh, well, there's a moment they're just all obsessed with his penis and they're all taking the piss out of his, you know, like they kind of, you know, they're just constantly saying he's got a little one and, and, and they touch it and, and that's so Indian. That's such an Indian thing, you know, uh, you know, like with guys out there, that's their thing. So I thought that was amazing how you captured that, uh, that sense of uh, manhood, you know, um, yeah. with the other drivers, that yeah. bravado. Yeah. I thought that, and again, that's very colloquial, but so specific. No one else could do that or think that than, than someone like, you know, someone who's from there in that yeah. way. But, um, but you did it so effortlessly. And you <laughs> You understand, you know, so when this poor guy walks in and they can constantly hit him in his privates, you're like, okay, you get it. Um, but it wasn't that scene, you know, that was just something I liked a lot because it, it spoke to me of complete authenticity. I love um, it. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it was really, you know, because I, I mean, I sit on set and see people doing that to each other and I'm like, what? Why are they obsessed with their dicks? Anyway, um, aside there. Um, um, the scene in the car in the rain, in which the film is building up to, which you know, because constantly, you know, I'll be honest with you, when the book came out, I was, I was, you know, very impressed with it. And it was fantastic and so proud as an Indian that it won the Booker Prize, right? But as a director, I was like, I don't want to go there. It's not something I want to do. It's so dark. It's not me, blah, blah, blah. And then we're, you know, you, we all think this is directors, don't we? We all think, oh, should I have told that story? Should I try and tell that story? You know, and as an Indian, I thought, oh, it's won a book a prize. Should I tell that story? And I just read it and I was like, no, because too dark, you know, and I'm not that Indian enough to do that story kind of thing. So I kind of, but it was great watching your film, knowing that, that knowing that, you know, because there are other films you watch as directors and you go, hmm, I would have done a much better job than that. You know, we all do it. I do it. Um, but with this, I was able to relax and really enjoy it. But I loved the fact that I was constantly having to sympathise with a murderer, basically, you know, um, and that conflict all the way through, because, you know, I, I like emotion. That's what I like in my films. And so emotionally, you're just constantly all over the place, you know. And so we've been building up, building up, building up to the scene in the rain, you know. And he's got this bottle with broken glass. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to knife him. Oh, my God, what is he going to do? Like, I thought the tension in that scene was fantastic. I really did. Yeah, thanks. He's not a murderer. He's not like a, no. you know, he's like a, a I mean, it was kind of guy. Part of that was a lot. A lot of that was. Um, thanks for saying that. A lot of that was the the script. Um, I worked very closely with my team at Netflix and McCool, but especially with Bahara Azimi, who's a French Iranian woman living in Paris, who has been my co writer on my movies like Chop Shop, Goodbye Solo, Ninety Nine Homes, and she's one of the producers here. So we were talking a lot with her and McCool about 
tracking his descent so that we would believe he's ready to do that. Um, and then that scene specifically, um, one, it was really hard for the actors because by the time we shot it, it was the end of December and Delhi had gotten freakishly cold. It was like 30 degrees when we shot it in the, in that rain. So that was hard for them. But, um, I knew I wanted it to be handheld and intimate and close so that it would feel personal and visceral. But then I, I really wanted that. Um, I, I knew I wanted to break out of there one time to the wide shot on that medium lens at 96 frames. Because I, I didn't, this is not just a story about Balram and Ashok. This is a story about servant and master. It's something more epic. You know, it's, it's about... It's about that class and caste in India, but to me, it's also about, you know, the Uber driver in London or the seamless delivery man or woman in Brooklyn that, that might bring my lunch one day. It's about that class divide, the, bat, the endless battle between rich and poor. And so I wanted that, I wanted to jump out of that for a moment and give that kind of historic or social scope inside that intimate personal moment with that one shot and um that that that's kind of what that was about well he absolves himself you know of murder because at the end he's kind of full of the american dream right he's it's okay he's made money he's done well so you know you and you are gunning for him at that point you're kind of with him but that ending is fantastic because now he's the master and all these drivers are his servants you know and how well, he is with all of them he treats them better right yeah. he, he they sign a contract yeah. like he doesn't bullshit them he doesn't say they're family or any of that kind of crap they have hours exactly. they have deals they've arranged it they've agreed and um that last scene i love because it's one of my favorite parts of the novel it's the dialogues are pretty close to what's in the book, but the concept is directly from the book. And Arvind and I had always talked uh, about Dostoevsky. It was a writer we talked a lot about. Crime and punishment was something we talked a lot about from college onward because it was this amazing kind of entertaining story, right? It was a, it was a mass appeal of a novel published in chapter form, right? In, in magazines. And then it's incredibly deep and rich. And um, I always saw the White Tiger as something like that because it's so entertaining, but it's so rich in thought and character. And that ending that Arvin wrote, which is the last, I made it the last scene of the film, is um, totally upending crime and punishment and everything else because of what he's, the philosophy of it, which is the, the nightmare isn't that the murderer is chasing after you saying shame. The nightmare is that you're still a servant to another man and you didn't kill the guy. Mm. And that's so challenging and radical. And mm. what I liked about the novel that I pushed even a little further in the film is Ashuk's not the worst guy in the world. Even Balram says quite cheekily, I should have killed the mongoose, you know? So you're asking an audience to stick with that character and question him and wonder about him and, you know, hopefully question what's going on around us a little bit, but it's not easy. It's a hard thing that he does in the end. Classic underdog, you know, who, who's been given a voice, yeah. you know, that we don't often hear. And that seems to be the theme of a lot of your films. It is yeah. that underdog story, 
of lives that are seen as insignificant, not important, uh, marginal, and then you you're sort of taking them and making them center stage, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think in in a way, like I think we, you and I, have a, a similarity because we've dealt with a lot of characters that don't get time in the Western world, right? By the yeah. nature of where they're from, and then you know, I also just I really like characters that are on the edge, you know, on the edge economically and socially. Let's say in England, you know, Ken Loach is someone I admire a lot. His work with Paul Laverty. Um, Mike Lee does it in a different way. Um, I think Andrea Arnold's doing it in a yeah. really, really exciting way. But, you know, those those characters that no one wants to make movies about, really. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to those stories. Well, those are a very rich part of the British filmmaking tradition. Yeah. Those- but in America, you know, those are not necessarily the kind of films that, you know, the studio no. system will find that. <laughs> no, like, not at all. Yeah, so what are you going to, like, what happens now? I mean, would you, are you, do you get offers from, do you get sent scripts about, uh, you know, poor refugees trying to make it, you know, in a very Hollywood-esque way or? Well, I tell you, it's weird. You get, yeah, I know. I know. I'm sure you get them too. I'm sure you get them as well. Like, no. So you'll get like, you might get that, the, the, um, let's say, yeah, the Hollywood version or the very sweet version of that story. Or what I find strange, which I don't know if you've encountered this, you'll get someone very sincerely telling you they loved your movie. And then they'll hand you a script that has nothing to do with your work. Like it's an action movie or something like that. And you don't, it's hard to understand. Like, I thought you liked that White Tiger. I thought you liked 99 Homes. Why are you giving me a space, a sci-fi space film? I don't want to make that. So, yes, yeah. I, I, I had a lot of that earlier on. I didn't really know how to handle that, to be honest with you. Because uh, I thought if they're coming to me, then they're obviously coming to me because of who I am and what I'm mm-hmm. about. Uh, and it, there's always that thing, isn't there, as a director, is that you you want to make films where people know it's you, you're making the film. You know, yeah. it's your POV, it's your unique perspective. And hopefully you're making a film that no one else could make. That's that's your film to make. You know, yeah. you don't want to be making films that any number of people could have made, you know, and still be the same film. Um, that's always my sort of bugbear with, um, with, with um, you know, other projects. But I've been actually open a lot more now to sort of getting scripts and, uh, and then reworking them to my perspective. And I think that's that's something I wish I'd learnt, you know, 10, 15 years ago more, actually. Um, yeah, I think I think there's room to do that. You know, I agree. Um, it's not easy to find that. But also, I don't know what your experience is there um, in England, um, but there's new voices coming up that are getting shots and getting noticed in a different way. So I'm always on the lookout for young talent. I mean, I'm producing sometimes now for younger directors. I, I had a film. Uh, last last year, Socrates, a Brazilian-American director, made that did really well on the festival circuit. And I had a film that premiered on Friday called Lutsu. It's a Maltese film. My assistant editor for the last decade, who we've been working closely, I produced his film, his debut film, and it set in Malta. It's with real fishermen playing themselves and about the corrupt fishing industry there. He's trying to survive with his family called Lutsu, L-U-Z-Z-U, which is their traditional boat. and 
opened up to awesome, great reviews so far and at a Sundance and working with him now to develop his next film. So I'm also searching for those young directors or young writers that as people helped me up, you know, when I was starting 15 years ago to try to get them up and get them flying off into the world, you know? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm sure people who are um, listening to us who will want to approach you, uh, I'm sure of it because it's a, it's a great tradition in Britain that, that, sense of uh you know ordinary life slice of life you know yeah. of people who are who, you know because of course class is such a big thing here and we make a lot of films here around class but not necessarily in in america although no. they do but they just don't call it class in america no no if you're color right yeah no if you're poor in america you don't even accept it you would say something different you know mm-hmm. So what are your, what's your biggest dream for White Tiger? What would you like to happen with White Tiger in terms of you as a director and your trajectory? Nothing really. I can't ask for more. Uh, the film was, I think the, it was the number one watched movie, I think, in the world on Netflix or number two, something like this in the last week. So mm-hmm. it's now been seen by more people than have seen all my films combined probably times five or something so it's it's and the response is you know tremendously strong and um you know i'm I'm setting up a it's been the works for a while actually even before the white tiger came out i have a new project with with netflix that deals with um an illegal immigrant but in a very different way that we're going to announce i think this week and um you know just probably like you i have four or five projects I've been moving on a chessboard for a couple of years and trying to get them now. Which one can I get to the, actually to the starting line of getting it into, to getting it made, you know? Well, that's interesting as during lockdown, you've obviously been editing. By the way, uh, please uh, ask your questions on the chat line here. Um, um, yeah, during lockdown, I think the one thing that's been fantastic for me is being able to escape into different scripts and different stories and different worlds. You know, I think that idea at the weekend, I get a bit anxious with the Groundhog Day side of it. But during the week, I'm fine because I know I've got to get up and get into that script or get into that world and do the research and, you know, just escape. And so I think script writing has been a godsend for me during lockdown. I was saved by the editing. By the editing, exactly. That's what I meant. You were editing for, what, eight, nine months? Yeah. Um, um, how did you balance the more comedic and light narration approach with such a dark and complex subject? Oh, man, that was um, a subject of conversation forever in the writing and in the pre-production with my creative department heads because I had never done anything like that in my own work. Um, and every day we were talking about tone, tone, tone. And um, trying to, with the, with the cinematographer, the production designer, the costume designer, trying to get the tone of Arvin's book. Um, and then later with editing and music. And um, the voiceover I knew would always be in the film. It was so integral to first-person narration, if you haven't read the novel. So there is no other perspective of what's in his head and what he thinks and says. And it was so specific and funny and strong. So... That was always there. It was never a script without voiceover. Um, and then on set, sometimes, of course, you're having to time things because he's going to have a thought before he even answers. And you got to time that out. 
Um, yes, yes. And then it was just trying to, trying to um, again, things I had not done in any of my films, trying to keep the, sh- even the shooting style, trying to keep it when possible, fun, propulsive, alive. Like there's a moment in the village when he's a kid and he's talking about how the family all sleeps together like a, a creature, a millipede, which is something that's straight out of the novel. So in shooting it, it was like, okay, let's, let's be high and move real quick on a wide lens to, to see these families from here to here and from here to here, just to give it something playful and, and, and that fun feeling of the novel, despite how heavy the subject matter is or the themes are. So we were working a lot. And then of course, in editing, trying to really keep it moving and, and the music and the score, the score, even they were playing Punjabi MC right up front of this talk, like. Yeah. And hip hop, you used hip hop as well, right? Yeah. So. Um, did you at the end of course he he looks straight into the camera and you know delivers his dialogue did you think about that at other points yeah he breaks the fourth wall a couple of times in the film Um, there's that moment under the chandelier and and another time that ending scene to me is is the most weird because um, everything he's saying to all those drivers that final monologue if if somebody in the audience thinks that he's not really talking to them and it's all in his head, I could believe that interpretation. You know, did he really pull those drivers up and tell them all that? I'm not sure. You know, um, it could have just been something he was daydreaming about. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, Deva Palmier says, congrats on white tiger. I loved watching it. I also loved reading the novel, which is by now iconic in its own right. I'd love to know what was the most challenging thing about bringing this powerful novel to the screen and also how long did you have to shoot it? Interestingly, Deva, is the novel is also dedicated to you, isn't it? So that's double the pressure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, I'll answer the second question because it's easy to answer. It took 60 days to shoot the film. Um, It was a long shoot because it's, it's epic story. I mean, we were in so many locations and they're so Grinder. It probably has a hundred scenes more than I had ever made in a feature film. Um, I think I shot, I think I shot 240 scenes. Um, yeah. And normally you have like a hundred and some, um, I think the final shooting script was 123 pages, but now I probably cut out, um, 13, 14 pages of the script in the edit room. I think the continuity script is like 110 pages, maybe. Um, hard, hard things from the this novel to the movie was cutting, actually. It was cutting. It was actually getting the script to be only 123, which is already really long, because I liked so much of the novel. It was hard to cut stuff. And even in the edit, I don't know if, if we cut 13 pages from the script, six, seven of those pages I cut because the scenes weren't even good. I just had failed to make them good. but at least half of the stuff I cut, I think the scenes are actually really good, but you're just trying to shorten the movie and get it to move. Um, the other hard part was tone. Honestly, it was the tone. Like risking Gurinder on weird things like Balram telling Ashok, I want to smash your skull and steal your money. In the novel, he thinks this. And in the movie, I had him say it. And I just assumed and hoped an audience would know he didn't really say it. Or 
in the novel, right after that scene, he encounters a man in a slum crapping in the slum and he sits down and craps near him and starts laughing. I don't know if that yeah. really happens or if it's in his head, but we just shot it. Assuming an audience would just go into the depths of him losing it without camera trickery, without anything, just shoot it as if it's real and people will get that it's in his head or that it's partially in his head, you know? Those were the risks that I'd never done before. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes the film really once you've got us on that journey, you're not going to let us go. So yeah. there's all kinds of um, uh, things that you need to play with the narrative to keep yeah. us guessing constantly, you know, keep us going, keep us guessing. And that's one of the things by just, as you say, we, is it in his head? Did he really say it? Also, he's not allowed to say it. He's a servant. So what's he doing? And why is it about him? He's a servant, you know. What? So we're constantly, you know, you're constantly making us um, feel like we're interloping on a story by someone that we shouldn't really be, who shouldn't really have their own story, basically. Yeah. Oh. You know. Uh, so you're playing with that as well uh, with the narrative. Um, uh, there's a question here from Lauren Pushkin uh, about uh, what did author what did he say when he saw the final film i'll ask that he hasn't seen it <laughs> he doesn't want to see it does he the final no, film he, he likes it he likes it yeah oh, he, he was happy. It. oh i thought yeah, you told he me he was happy thank god he, he was exact word i can't remember now he called i know he called me one time and said i watched half of it and I, he just said he loved it and he said he's getting nervous to finish it because it's making him you know, remember the novel, but then he sent me an email later just telling me that he, he just loved it. He, he was so happy with it. You know, I, I, I feel I captured the tone of the novel. If people have read it, I feel it's the novel and it's in interpretation anyway. Definitely. Um, Nick Shaw, uh, away from scripts, what do you like to read? Dostoevsky, oh, I like reading. obviously. Yeah, I like reading a lot. Um, this morning I finished a great novel, um, Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather. She's an American author. Um, I think um, early, well, she was born in the late 1800s but, and died in the mid 1900s. Um, I'd read two of her other novels a couple of years ago, My Antonia and um, O Pioneers. I had never read this one. So, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, Rini again, did Netflix give you carte blanche or did they give you any framework they wanted you to work within? I mean, I had a budget. <laughs> I had a budget to work within. And I shouldn't exceed, but they were pretty awesome um, in terms of creative freedom. No one told me I had to do anything, including the casting of Adarsh, for example. Um, he's kind of, he's an unknown. No one knows him. And there were Western diaspora stars that we know and love that I want to work with that I'm sure you love too. And there were Bollywood stars that wanted the lead, but that kid's audition was so amazing. He was so inspiring to me. I showed the tape to Netflix and knowing there were movie stars to play the lead, they said, cast him, we think he's great. So they were, they were great partners, honestly. Wonderful. Well, just generally speaking, as a director, I mean, think, things have changed so much now in terms of streamers. You know, at the beginning of COVID, there was really Amazon and uh, Netflix, you know, and now at, the end, at this end, you know, a year later, there's so many other possibilities of streaming. Um, yeah. And there's still studios, there's still the traditional uh, ways that we can finance our films. 
I mean, how do you feel about that streamer versus theatrical experience? I mean, in terms of for this film or the next film. Well, I mean, I was in a lucky place with um, Netflix. If it hadn't been for COVID, there the whole concept was to launch the film in Venice. If Venice liked the film, which I found out later, Alberto did like the film, and I premiered four of my films in Venice and two of them in Cannes. So that was part of the strategy was right. to still have that festival experience and then to have a theatrical run, which the film did have a theatrical run in, in England and even in the States. But I live in New York. There's no open, there's no theater open here. And in the other like 40, 50 cities, they did a theatrical run here in America in January. I mean, who's going to the theater now? It's not very safe. It's, it's scary to do it. So that made this experience a little weird. Uh, I've never seen the movie with an audience. Um, right. Very strange. Um, I had to edit the movie alone. I couldn't even invite people into the edit room. I just sent links to some friends and they would call me with their notes, but I couldn't sit with someone. You know the feeling. You sit behind them and you feed off their energy yeah. to see where is it lagging, where are they excited, what are they not understanding. I couldn't do any yeah. of that. But in general, I mean, there's no denying that the it's pretty fucking awesome that the movie opened in 190 countries to 200 million potential viewers. And I know people were watching it in, in so many different countries already subtitled on the same day or in some places dubbed, which I don't mind. If someone wants to, wants to watch my movie dubbed, let them. What if they don't, can't read the subtitles? I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I should add, Gurinder, I'm very happy because of this stupid insane embargoes from the West on my country, Iran, which makes me so mad because they're economically crippling people. There's no Netflix in, in Iran, but they have already counterfeited the movie and put Persian subtitles on it, as my family now has seen the film. I'm very happy about that. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Are your parents in America? Where are your parents? Yeah. yeah, my parents are here, but I have a lot of family in Iran. And I, I did send Netflix a note to let them know I was very happy that my countrymen have already pirated and dubbed the movie in, in Persian, so or subtitled it in Persian. Yeah. Did you get to see the film with your parents? I did. Yeah, I drove down. That's, That's the most yeah. important thing. <laughs> well, my my dad comes from a village very similar to Balram. Okay. Um, my dad did. They didn't have electricity or running water till he was six or seven. He would not have hugged the water buffalo like Balram does. He would have hugged the donkey. They had donkeys. Right. Right. Yeah. I'd lived in Iran for three years of my adult life. I've lived in that village. So I have some feeling for that place. Right, right. Well, I, don't, I haven't seen any more questions uh, on the chat there. So um, um, I'll let you uh, finish off, uh, uh, Ramin. What was the, as a director, making a film like this, you know, uh, with the this kind of cast... You know, you're right. Ten years ago, it was would have been not seen as a very uh, commercial, pro you know, probability. Probably not even of merit creatively. You know, I mean, Ken Loach is an institution, but you know, he has to still, you know, um, he his films are always of a particular budget. They never go higher. You know, it's it's. It's not easy making these kind of films, you know, in the world. So, you know, congratulations for having achieved that and got, got it, getting it off the ground. 
I think it's a, a wonderful film about contemporary India. You know, it's a it you know, you you will find it hard to watch a film about the Raj, you know, in quite the same way after seeing this, you know. Mm. And also it's you know, it's people in the West have a, have such weird ideas about India. And we can still make all those other films, the period films and all the rest of it. But to have this as part of the vernacular now, as a film about an urgent, throbbing, kind of vociferous sort of, you know, India that is, uh, you know, it, it is, um, you know, the energy is sort of palpable. And, you know, today you have in India fathers protesting, you know, for their rights. You have... Um, a lot of agitation in India right now and people sort of, um, you know, calling out on a democracy and freedom and all the rest of it. And at the same time, you have people who are deeply nationalistic, you know, uh, fervently so. And, you know, I think a lot of that comes from the roots of um, what the country has gone through, you know, with uh, the various empires. And and so it's sort of finding itself, you know. And I think what White Tiger, you, know, uh, you know, it's like a third or fourth generation sort of kid of independent India saying, this is my identity. You know, I'm not beholden to what was, this is who I am now, you know like me or fuck off kind of thing it's that that's how i feel when i see the film and and i think that's what makes it a tremendous film i like, I like that they should put this <laughs> in a poster somewhere gorinder said like me or fuck off this is an excellent yeah. ad for the movie excellent this podcast was recorded at a directors uk member event you can hear more episodes of the directors uk podcast on itunes soundcloud spotify or your favorite podcatcher Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.